0: You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, part series of messages that John Blanchard presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1982. John Blanchard is a preacher, evangelist, author, former co director of Christian Ministries in Surrey, England, and an international conference speaker. Here's John Blanchard on Today in the Word radio. We're going to be looking at the first chapter of the letter of James. As you're now turning to it, let me explain its relationship to the volumes called Not Hearers Only that Dick Reed mentioned earlier. Let me say that this will almost certainly not apply to any who are not here in the auditorium this morning, but who are listening to this message on cassette or on tape. By the time you hear any opportunity of getting these four volumes will have gone, because those that are available here during this week are part of the very last ones that there will ever be on the face of this planet. Uh, Over the years and beginning in those years that we mentioned a few moments ago, I began to have a, well, a love affair with this part of Scripture. James chapter 1 and verse 17. Let me now revert to the King James Version uh, for the comfort of most. James 1 and verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow. I'm sure you would agree with me when I say that there is nothing more serious in a man's uh, doctrinal position than to have a false or a wrong conception of God basically what is wrong with the world. That is the basic problem of the unbeliever. He has a wrong idea of who God is and of what God is. And it is precisely for that reason that many unbelievers consider coming to terms with God, getting into a right relationship with God, because they have a totally false idea of who and what God is. And what makes it so serious is that a false conception of God will eventually pervade his thinking and behavior and will, at the end of the day, point its fatal finger at his destiny. So it is crucially, vitally important to be right at this point, to know who God is, what God is. I wonder if that's the reason for James's wording in verse 16. Do not... Er, my beloved brethren, or as we have it in the NIV, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Now, the undecided as to whether James is casting that phrase back into verses 13 through 15, where he speaks about the mistake of people thinking that God tempts them with evil. And he says, look, God doesn't tempt anyone. Don't be about this. Don't get this wrong conception of God, that God is the author of evil. Or is James introducing verse 17? You'll appreciate he didn't put the verse numbers in uh, in the first place. Those were put in later to complicate us. Um, The verse numbers came in later, and James just wrote in one steady flow. Is he therefore introducing the words of verse 17 by saying, Now don't be deceived about this. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down, and so forth. Either way, of course, the point he is making is the same. Don't be deceived. Don't make a mistake about the character and the nature of God. And in verse we have one of God's titles. In fact, we may mention the point later, a unique title in the whole of Scripture. The Father of Lights is a phrase that is not used anywhere else, in the whole of the Bible. It also says something about the nature of being a giving God. Just go back to verse 5 of chapter 1. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. Will you notice the little phrase, that giveth, or, modernizing it, the God who gives or as we might equally translate it, the giving God. Now, what a lovely phrase The Christian here this morning will identify with that as a title that we can give to God. He is the giving God. The unbeliever sees God with a clenched fist, a dictator, a ruler, and one with a rule at that, imposing vicious, bitter, harsh, cruel, external laws upon him. The unbeliever sees God with a clenched fist. The believer sees him with an open hand. He's the giving God. ...of our study this morning, although we're looking not at verse 5, but at verse 17. The giving God. You see, the verse is all about giving. Here's the first uh, heading I would, uh, I would have First of all, the verse says something about human giving. Every good and perfect gift, or literally, every good giving and every perfect gift. The act of giving. However, having said that that is the best attested uh, authority for the wording, there is one minority rendering in all the old manuscripts that renders it like this. All giving is good. And I want to uh, take the unusual step of of leaning rather heavily on that minority reading just for the purposes of an introduction to the rest of the study. All giving is good. In other words, there is an element of good in giving, even among wicked men. Jesus acknowledged that. Do you remember him saying in Matthew 7, you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. There's an element of in all giving, even when it's done by evil men. A good gift can be given by a bad man. The problem is that all of our human gifts are marred in some way by our very humanity. The fact that we are human gifts are never, as God's gifts are, perfect. They are marred, they're spoiled by our humanity. Let me give you some examples of what I mean. Our gifts may not be sincere. They may not be sincere. They may be not genuine. There is a kind of giving, a speculating, in order to accumulate. It looks like generosity and community. It's giving with a view to getting. It's being selective in the people to whom we give and the measure in which we give, in the hope that in return we might get more. Now our hearts condemn us in that. But that's true, that our giving may not be sincere. The gift in itself is good, but it's not sincere. Secondly, it may not be sensible. The father who lavishes material gifts upon his children, upon his wife, but doesn't give to them the time, and the love, and the care, and the concern that he ought as a father and a husband. His gifts are not sensible, they're not wise. Many of us, as we grow older, come sadly to the conclusion that we have not always been wise in the way we've treated our wives, husbands, children. We've not been sensible in what we've given to them. Our gifts may not be sufficient almost certainly they'll not be sufficient. An appeal is made for the aged, refugees, needy, the hungry, victims of earthquakes or whatever, and we give $5, $50, $100, $10,000. Now, those gifts are fine. They're good. They're legal tender. They're valid currency. They are good gifts. They're genuine gifts. But almost certainly they're not sufficient. They don't meet all the needs. They may not be suitable gifts. The person to whom we're giving them may not need them. I don't know how it was with you, but I remember when we were married, uh, the sort of mixed emotions with which we opened our 13th set of fruit spoons from a well-meaning friend who said, we'd like to give you this as a wedding present. Well, that was very generous of them. Switched from wet shaving to dry shaving and took up an electric uh, shaver. Of course, sure as eggs. The next Christmas, all my friends gave me soap and lather and brushes and the whole works to, for wet shaving. It was very kind of them, very thoughtful of them. Any longer. So our giving is marred by our humanity. It may not be sincere, it may not be sensible, it may not be sufficient, it may not be suitable. We can therefore say these two things about human giving. Because it is giving, good in it. Because it is human, it is marred in some way. It's marred by our humanity. It's limited, if you like, by our humanity. Well, so much about human giving. And getting into the real heart of the text, it really speaks about heaven's gifts. Every good and perfect gift is from above. The word perfect is the Greek teleion, which is used often in by James in, for instance, verse four of chapter one, where he speaks about that ye may be perfect. And entire, wanting, nothing. Or as the NIV has it, mature and complete, not anything. And it's a fine explanation of exactly what James is getting at here. It's the ultimate. It's something that cannot be bettered. And it stands in brilliant contrast to man's giving. Man's giving, as we have seen. It's giving. It may be generous. And so forth. There's certainly some element of good in it. But in brilliant contrast to that God's giving is always perfect his gifts are always always sensible always sufficient and always suitable and all of it is summed up in this one word perfect if it's from above it's perfect and, as you will know, the word perfect is one of the Bible's favorite words in describing the nature and the character and the activity of God. And let me give you some illustrations biblically of that. First of all, God's work is perfect. God's work is perfect. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses says to Israel, He is the rock. His works are perfect. Again, Notice it by way of contrast. The contrast between man's work and God's work. Man's work may look fine, but the closer you examine something that man has made, the more imperfect does it become. And the imperfection is an exposition of man's character. The fact that man never has and never can and never will actually create something that is perfect is an exposition of his character and his nature. Shall we take a a needle that a man makes with the most up-to-date, mechanical, scientific machinery at his disposal, and you are handed this beautiful, shining needle straight out of the factory, glistening, and so sharp that you dare not touch your finger with it. And you would say, now that needle, by all of the modern means, uh, indeed electronically computerized, no doubt, brought to a perfect point. Now put that under a microscope. And that perfect point is like a jagged stump of a broken off tree. Because it was made by man, it looks perfect. But the closer you examine it, the more... Imperfect, it becomes. Now take a common flower by the roadside. Just step off into a field, pick up. Isn't that beautiful? That's perfect. Yes, it looks perfect at that point. Now put it under a microscope. What do you discover? Do you discover that what you thought was perfect was imperfect? What you discover is a greater world of perfection than ever you could see. Why did I? And my friends, that will stand any kind of examination. The closer you look at anything that God has made, the more perfect it becomes. The closer you look at anything that man has done, the more imperfect it becomes. God, his works are perfect. And what are his greatest works? Well, the greatest works that God has ever done are the works of creation and re-creation, creation and redemption what about his work of creation you don't need me to remind you that in genesis 1 as the great flow of creation passes before our eyes we have god again and again looking at one stage after another and saying and god said it was good and god said it was good and god said it was good and finally and god saw that it was very good very good by god's perfect standard his creation was very and what about recreation in Isaiah 53 we have this phrase and I'm using now the King James version because it brings out this point so particularly well he shall the travail of his soul and be satisfied the work of recreation of redemption Is perfect. This is absolutely staggering. Look upon the work that He accomplished at Calvary, and will see it to be perfect. The Lord Jesus will look upon that which He did at Calvary, and will see it to have accomplished everything that God did to accomplish. Let us say this with crystal clarity. When the Lord Jesus died upon the cross, he did not die to make it possible for people to be saved. He died to save people. There's a world of difference between the two. He shall save his people from their sins. Not, well, he'll make a stab at it and hope that it works out. It is a perfect and complete work. And that's far-reaching. It says something absolutely clinching to some of these very hard questions. For instance, what about the heathen who've never heard the gospel? What about those who've died before they've ever got to an age of responsibility? What about Christians who fail in their responsibility to witness to others and therefore the fact that these others have never believed is really, humanly speaking, because a Christian has never shared What about a person who is born mentally incapable of grasping truth and dies that way years later? What happens to them? What's God going to do about them? How is God going to work all that out? The answer to that, my friend, is twofold. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the other answer is this. He shall see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied not a glib answer to the questions. The questions are still there, but may I put it to you this way, they're crucified. They're still there. They're not going to go away, but they're crucified. They no longer have any power, certainly in my life. And I'm, ai think, a loving and sympathetic, empathizing, if there is such a word, person. But those questions no longer bother me, because, can I put it this way, they no longer bother God he shall see of the travail of his and be satisfied. All we can say without any attempt to elude or trivialize the questions is that at the end of the day, God will be satisfied that his work of redemption is perfect and complete in every way and beyond the complaint of man. is that what Paul means when he says to the Philippians that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? That means that even those who are eternally condemned will acknowledge that Jesus was right that he was divine that God is God and that his judgment is beyond all thought because his work is perfect because God never makes a mistake not only that but secondly his way is perfect 18 and verse 30 as for God his way is perfect this was written of course by david And it's so important to notice when it was that David wrote this. It was at a time not when the sun was shining and there wasn't a cloud. Everything was hunky-dory and things were just going marvelously. As we say, everything was coming up roses. Far from it. Oh, it's so easy to say then. Well, as for God, you know, his way is perfect. The sun is shining. Easy to sing heavenly sunshine then, isn't it? And we're healthy in body. The family are making progress. We've got a big bank account, a good job. Our church is progressing. We're in a wonderful fellowship. Everything is so happy. Well, let's sing, shall we? That'll be great. But David said this at a time of testing and trial and misunderstanding and misery. Saul was hounding him to death. And David said, God, his way is perfect. David would have chosen another way. David would have chosen an easier way. David, it was just like you and me, he would have chosen cushions instead of conflicts. But he had the spiritual insight to see that God had led him through the fire and the shadows and the deep waters in order to bring him to greater faith and maturity. As for God, his way is perfect. In my testimony tonight, I will have to share with you the darkest passage that I've ever known in the whole of my life and one that I would never wish upon my worst enemy. And I look back on it and say, As for God, his way There comes a time in the life of every Christian when faith turns to fear and clarity to clouds and circumstances turn sour and resources dwindle and pressures increase. My friends, we need to lean on words like this. God, his way is perfect. Now, the way we would choose would be easier, of course. But God's way is always better. In fact, it is best. That's why Paulus Gerard says in words Wesley, Leave to his sovereign sway to choose and to command. So shalt thou, wondering, own his way. How wise, how strong his hand. Far, far above thy thought his counsel shall appear when fully hath wrought that caused thy needless fear. His way is perfect. Thirdly, his will is perfect. Romans 12 and verse 2, Paul speaks about God's good and acceptable and perfect will. And of course that takes us beyond God's works into the secret counsels of his mind. His works are perfect. His way is perfect. Oh, and His will is perfect. Rest there is from grasping hold upon the truth that God's will is perfect and unchanging and unchanged. Not only that, but fourthly, thirdly, yes, fourthly, His Word is perfect. Psalm 19 and verse 7 the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. Or here in James' first chapter, verse 25, he speaks about the perfect law of liberty. And here, if only the word is it, is the reason why the Bible is never out of touch, never out of context, and never out of date. Because it is the living word of the living God, and God never changes. We'll see that point a little later. That is the real heart of this study. And because we have in the Bible not just the words of men about God, but the word of God to men, we can know that that word is perfect. One of the greatest tragedies in the church today is the debate about the inerrancy and the authority and the infallibility of Scripture. There is no debate about that in hell. And there is no debate about it in heaven debate about it is on earth where the christian church is tearing itself apart deciding whether the word of god is the word of god but you see unless we begin there we start as far as biblical christianity is concerned i accept that there are other views about scripture I accept that there are views which say that the Bible is, of course, inerrant in matters to do with salvation, but has errors in other areas and so forth. Be aware of that and not unaware of many of the arguments adduced for it. The one statement that I will make with crystal clarity is this, that some of those other views may have a great deal of weight behind them, apparently, if you count... learning and degrees as being weight, but I know that there are many men who've died by degrees and I'm not really too worried about, uh, about the amount of degrees a person may have. But whatever authority may come, apparently, to views, the one thing that can be said is this, the only biblical view of Scripture is that Scripture is inerrant. That is the only view the Bible ever puts forward. J.I. Packer has said, "To to God's word is an act of faith. Any querying and editing of it on our own initiative is an exhibition of unbelief. And I agree with that. It's an act of... It's been a humbling experience to recognize how much of Scripture I don't understand. But there's none of it that I don't stand under. I don't understand it. But I stand under it. And that's an act of faith. And I'm recognizing more and more that God's word, that God's word is perfect. Again, as Packer says, to edit God's word. Bring God's word to our own, the bar of our own reason and say, now I will decide that this bit is right and this bit isn't quite right. And Jesus may or may not have said that. Well, that's rampant unbelief. We must make up our minds whether we're going to be liberals or Christians, because the two are not the same animal at all. Now let's gather. God's work is perfect, his way is perfect, his will is perfect, his word is perfect. What can we say? Nothing good comes except from God. And nothing except good comes from God. His giving and His gifts are perfect in every way. But all of that leads us to the third point in our study, and the last one. The verse speaks about the heavenly giver, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Or as the NIV has it, coming down from the Father of the heavenly light. That word, I think, uh, accurately who does not change like shifting shadows. Now, before examining the heart of the text, let me draw your attention to the fact that the verb coming down is a continuous participle. And I don't want to get you indigestion over that, except to say this, it is continuous and present. It is not something that happens spasmodically, now and then, once in a while. Giving The giving of God's good and perfect gifts is something that is continually happening. It is a perpetual rain and sunshine of gifts from God. And God is never less than generous, even when we are less than grateful. And there are two important subjects touched on here. The first is God's name, and the second is God's nature. Here is God's name. Look at it. The Father of lights, or the Father of the heavenly God is the Father of lights. He is the source of lights. When I was flying in to uh, Tampa just a couple of days ago from England, and of course by the time I arrived it was night, I always think it's to uh, fly over a city that you've never visited before, or indeed that you have, and are going to minister there for a week. And uh, I always just just pray for... Uh, that city or continue to pray for it and for God's blessing on the days to come. And then it's coming into vision and you see all of those myriad lights, tens of hundreds of thousands of lights. It's always amazing to recognize that, uh, as truthfully as uh, needn't be contradicted, all of those tricks in- of light all over that city come from one source. And so the Bible teaches us that light, in its many facets, comes from one source. For instance, God is the source of light. The first recorded word of God spoken in Scripture was, Let there be light. And there was light. The immediate obedience of the elements show him to be the source of all natural light. No wonder David can speak of God or to God about the moon and the stars which you have set in place. It has always seemed to me that atheism is intelligent. I cannot understand a person being an atheist. I know that there are some who are atheists. I just cannot understand them, that's all. I could least of all fail to understand them, least of all understand them rather, to... Step outside on a beautiful starlit night and look up into the heavens and see without turning their heads, well, thousands of stars. Some of those stars a thousand times the size of the bigger than that. And I would like to ask the atheist a question, how did they get there? And who put them there? Was that done by a man or a committee of men or a council of men? Was that a conference decision? How were all of those stars put into those perfect orbits? God is the Father and the source of natural light. He's also the source of intellectual light. Do You remember the occasion in Daniel chapter 2 when he asked his wise men to interpret his dreams, and when none of them could, he promptly sentenced them all to death. And Daniel was the next in line for execution if he couldn't come up with the answer. And what did Daniel do? Well, he gathered together some Christian friends of his. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they held a prayer meeting. They sought God's face. And God revealed to them the secret of the king's dreams. And then Daniel Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and deep. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. Daniel two twenty one. Light dwells with him. What we call knowledge is more than God revealing truth to us. Christianity is a revelatory religion. Nothing we know of God do we know of him except that mysterious revealed, of himself by himself. He is the father of intellectual light. He is the source of theological light. Of course, he is the source of the Bible. Further than that, even with the Bible open before us, we would not be able to see the light unless God revealed its truth to us. Now, surely we can understand that. If we go to an unconverted person and we say, Now, look, there is the Bible of the living God this is the word of truth this is the gospel of men's salvation read those words you hand the Bible to the most highly educated man in the world today and ask him to read the simplest statement of the gospel and unless God the Holy Spirit works in that man's mind he will throw the book back at you and say I can't understand a word of what it means now why? I have come to this. Of course, I knew it intuitively when I became a Christian, and the Spirit of God took over my mind. But since then, going to colleges and universities all over our land, speaking to people, studying subjects I can't spell, and I would seek to explain the gospel to them as simple as A, B, C, and they say I cannot understand it. A friend of mine goes to. Some of our greatest universities, I understand that on one occasion he to Cambridge University and he was going to speak to those undergraduates. And do you know what he did? He put up a flannel graph and gave them a children's talk. And they said, you don't understand it. Now how is that so? The reason is that unless the Spirit of God breathes upon the Word and brings its truth to light, we cannot understand it. The man without the Spirit does not accept the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2 14. And all the preaching and pleading and praying for the unsaved is in vain unless God gives the light. Christian, we come to the Word. You see, the Christian's religion is a revealed religion, and all we know of God and of ourselves and of salvation is as God graciously exercises his right to give life. Let me speak feelingly as a preacher. I come to Scripture. Perhaps I'm asked to speak at a particular service, and a word of Scripture comes quickly to mind, as it very often does, and you sometimes breathe a sigh of relief when you say, well, it's a familiar Scripture. Oh, I know this passage. And then you open the Bible and you get out your piece of paper and your pen and you say, well, now this is a bit I know so well. I know all the background to this and this is just, no need to open the Bible to know what this is saying. I mean, I know the words and then you say this message. Two hours later when your wife brings in the coffee and asks how you're getting on and sees a blank sheet of paper, you say, well, that's how I'm getting on. And two hours later when she says, how are you getting on and sees the blank sheet of paper, you say, well... That's how I'm getting on. I'm not getting on. Well, honey, don't you understand that part of Scripture? Oh, I know it. I mean, I could close the Bible now and recite it to you. Well, uh, why aren't you writing anything? Because I... I, It's not coming. I just cannot, cannot get it. The simplest part of Scripture and the person longest in the study of Scripture can't come together until God puts them together. You see, he's the source of theological light. Of course, he's the source of spiritual light also. In other words, the outworking of theological light. Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 9, that we are to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In Ephesians 5, 8, once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. But we cannot live as children of light until God gives us that spiritual light. Paul tells the Philippians, who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We cannot even want to do God's will until God gives us that spiritual light and insight. Now, all of this flows from that one phrase, unique in Scripture, that God is the Father of lights. And then finally, just this about God's nature. Who does not change like shifting shadows, or as the King James said, whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. This is a notoriously difficult phrase to translate and no easier to expound. I think the NIV captures the spirit very well, does not change like We could literally take the Greek apart word from word and translate it like this, with whom change or shadow due to turning has no place. And the picture is obviously from the natural heavens. For instance, gives light, but it doesn't always give the same amount of light. The amount of that light changes because it doesn't always strike the earth at exactly the same angle. And so we have this continuing cycle, continuously cycle of light from the sun. There is dawn, there is growing, gathering day, there is high noon, there is softening afternoon, there is twilight, there is dusk. One moment do the sun's rays strike the earth at exactly the same angle and produce exactly the same intensity and amount of light. Never for a moment. Always it is changing. Or again, the earth and the sun produce shifting shadows. If you sat out there this afternoon, you would see that happening. You would see the shadows shifting. The shadows move because the source of light is moving. It's not remaining. And the moon too causes a changing amount of reflected light to be beamed to the earth all the way from that tiny crescent to its full-orbed glory. And then, of course, there are the eclipses of... when the light is snuffed out altogether, or at least the light we receive is snuffed out altogether. So, all of these heavenly bodies and the light or reflected light that they produce, it's always changing. It is literally, one moment, exactly the same. It is always changing... But God, the Father of lights, never changes. And even if it were not said, he would driven to that conclusion by other scriptures. By the statements, for instance, about God's holiness. You see, God cannot change for the better because he's perfect. And he cannot change for the worse other than perfect, and God is perfect. So that in itself would drive me into a position where I had to testify that God does not change. Of course, Scripture states it, Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord, I do not change. And so we have that teaching about God's nature. Now in all of this, someone may say, well, that's been a interesting Bible study this morning and a verse that I would not have chosen to expound one verse from James 1. That seemed like a toughie to me. And, well, we've, we've been reminded of some truth about God and about his nature and so forth. But is there some personal, spiritual, devotional action gain from that verse for me today? Yes, there is. While it's true that life's shadows are never caused by God's turning and changing, they are caused by God's turning and changing. Let me give you the simplest illustration. You stand under a street light. If you stand directly under that street light, there is no shadow, whatever. You move a step, and there's a shadow. You move further away, and the shadow is longer, is greater. You move further away, the shadow gets even longer. You move further away, and you're in total darkness. Now, the light hasn't changed, and the position of the light has changed, and the intensity of the light, the amount of light has not changed, but you are in darkness. The reason is you've changed your position. You've got out from being under the light. My Christian friend this morning, are there shadows in your life you've moved out from being directly under the light? You've got your back to God and you've moved away into a position where his light and his glory are not beaming directly upon you. Is true, let me ask you in the Lord's name to turn back. To turn back so that you're standing directly under His light. In that place of love and submission, trust and obedience. And even as God speaks to your heart and points to something here and there that you know needs to be brought under the discipline and the authority of his word, just rejoice that you're coming back to the one who, while you were turning away, remained unchanged and unchanging and unchangeable. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions, they fail not, as thou hast been. Thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. In thy morning new mercies I see. All I have needed. Thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of five messages John Blanchard presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1982. John Blanchard is a preacher, evangelist, author, former co-director of Christian ministries in Syracuse, and an international conference speaker. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.